At the Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. In this session for young adults, authors Andrew Smith, Matt de la Peña, Jason Reynolds, and Brendan Keeley discuss their novels in the context of the journey from boyhood to manhood. Ladies and gentlemen, if you could take your seats, I'd like to introduce you to Matt de la Peña, Brendan Keeley, Jason Reynolds, Andrew Smith, and our host of Boys to Men, Amy Patti. All right, everybody. Thank you all for coming to Boys to Men. Um, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about guy stuff. And um, afterwards, you guys will have an opportunity to, at, well, during, you guys will have an opportunity to ask some questions of these folks. So what we're going to do is um, a brief introduction of these guys. Then uh, they're going to talk a little bit about their latest books. Then I've got some questions to ask them. And then we'll turn it over to you guys to ask them some questions as well. Sound like a plan? Here we go. All right. So we're going to go in this order. I have got to my immediate left Jason Reynolds and Jason Reynolds website. I don't know if you guys have visited it, but it establishes his explicit goal not to write boring books. His novel, When I Was the Greatest, earned the author the John Steptoe Award for New Talent in 2015. And he's the author of three other novels, The Boy in the Black Suit, a story told in art and poetry called My Name is Jason, Mine Too, um, with Jason Griffin, and All American Boy with Brendan Kiley. Brendan Kiley is a Boston area native, and his first novel, The Gospel of Winter, <laughs> was named in ALA's uh, Top 10 Best Fiction for Young Adults in 2015, and was a Kirkus Review selection for Best of 2014. His newest novel, All American Boys, written with Jason Reynolds, has already garnered high praise and starred reviews. And the novel is told from alternating perspectives and describes two classmates' reactions to a uh, act of police brutality that affects them both in different and intersecting ways. Next up, we've got Matt De La Pena. Matt De La Pena is a noted author of novels for young adult readers as well as picture books. His novels have been named ALA Best Books for Young Adults, Quicks Picks for Reluctant Readers, and Junior Library Guild Selections. His two most recent books for young adults, The Living and The Hunted, Imagine the American West Coast After the Big One Hits, and Raise the Disastrous Stakes by adding a mysterious communicable disease to the mix. The Living, which was published in 2013, received a 2014 Purabelle Prey Honor, and It's Too Soon to Tell for The Hunted, which was just published in 2015. Andrew Smith is last in the row. His young adult novels have received numerous honors. Grasshopper Jungle, published in 2014, received the 2014 Boston Globe Hornbook Award for Fiction and a 2015 Prince Honor. 100 Sideways Miles, also published in 2014, was on the long list for the 2014 National Book Award. Andrew's latest novel, Standoff, continues the story begun in 2013 with Winger, following 15-year-old Ryan Dean as he attempts to survive senior year at boarding school after being assigned a 12-year-old freshman roommate. We've all been there. All right. So these guys are going to talk a little bit about their latest work, and in this case, perhaps their work together. And then I'll have some uh, questions for them about dude stuff. Hi, everybody. Welcome to... Uh... It's weird to say welcome to Boys to Men. Like I'm the lead singer, Wanye Morris, right? Uh -huh. No, I, I, so I'm, I'm Jason Reynolds. And because this is a co-written book that we're talking about, I'm going to tell you about my half of the book. Uh, I wrote, so I'm the co-writer of, of All American Boys. 
she just gave you a bit of a synopsis of it, actually. Uh, but the, the, the hat that I, that I wrote was um, the character of Rashad Butler. Rashad Butler was a 16-year-old young man from, from the west side of Springfield. He's an ROTC student. He's an artist. Uh, and one day, he is accused of stealing a bag of chips and is terribly brutalized by a police officer, which then flings him into the throes of, of, of what that looks like and how do you process and synthesize that information. Um, what happens when you've been brutalized and you survive it? Uh, what happens when you become a hashtag? What happens when your community is torn and sort of ripped in half? What happens when your family has questions? What happens uh, when you are afraid to stand and when you are afraid to speak and when you are confused about what has happened to you? Um, it takes sort of what we have all been reading about in the headlines and it draws the camera back a bit to give sort of a macro level experience of all the nuances and complexities of what it is to be a uh, police brutality victim. And so it, it's a, that half of the story um, is about uh, victimization, but also a survivor story. And likewise, the other half of the story, the story that I wrote, um, uh, it's the narrative of Quinn. And, uh, and Quinn's story is he's a 17-year-old he's a white boy who uh, is out there uh, at, the, at the moment where that uh, brutality happens, and he witnesses uh, this event. Um, but for Quinn, his story is complicated in that uh, he has grown up without a father uh, because his father was a soldier in Afghanistan who died. And the father figure, the man who took him under his wing, is the exact police officer who uh, is brutalizing Rashad in chapter one. And he witnesses this, this happen. Um, and so it's the, story of, uh, it's the story of the recognition of the accountability uh, that Quinn has uh, as he witnesses this moment of violence, who will he become? Uh, will he uh, decide to act on principle? Will he decide to act on loyalties? Will he begin to consider his own role in all of this? Even though he's not throwing the punches, he's there, he's witnessing it, and the person who's doing it is someone very close to him. Uh, so it's, it's this complicated story of uh, the, who these two kids become after this one moment of violence but it's also, on another level, a conversation about America. And who will we become after we see these news stories over and over and over again? You guys have done this before. <laughs> no, they're, they've been on the road for this for a while, so. I also feel like I'm a part of this because I blurbed it. And the good, thing, <laughs> the good thing to know about this is I hate blurbing books, but when you're friends with the author, Jason texted me and he's like, dude, you have one week to blurb this. And I was like, I was like all right, let's get on it. So, um, my books, uh, my two newest books, one's called The Living, one's called The Hunted, and they're a little different from my other books. They're a little more commercial, bigger concept books. And there's a reason I did, I, I made the switch. First of all, I'd been writing these quiet, sort of urban, more on the literary side books. Um, and I love those books, those are my heart. But I was finding that they were really popular in the rougher neighborhoods, in the rougher schools, but occasionally I'd go to a librarian conference and a librarian from a suburban white high school would come up to me and they'd say, hey Matt, I just want you to know I love your books. We don't have kids like that in our school so we don't actually stock them, but I just want you to know I love them. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I totally get it. Just out of curiosity, how many wizards do you have at your school? <laughs> and so, you know, but I was like, okay, what if I wrote something that instead of going into the, the home space, the urban community of my char normal characters, 
and they're still from those spaces. What if I pulled them out of that context, put them in a more general setting, in this case, a cruise ship, what would happen? Could I get a different readership? And so that was, it's kind of been an experiment to see if that would work. And I, I, luckily, I feel like it works. Like I've got different readers. Um, and then the last thing I'll tell you is one of the coolest things I got recently is an email with a picture from this suburban librarian who said that she had, she had um, this kid who was reading The Living uh, on the bus. And two African-American students were on the bus also looking at this kid who was reading The Living and said to her, they're reading about me. And that just made me feel kind of like, hey, this is what I've been trying to do. Hi, I'm Andrew Smith. And uh, wow. <laughs> Matt also blurbed a book of mine, too, that came out. You know what? No. I mean, like, you can't help yourself when you read stuff like ours, right? <laughs> the book that Matt blurbed with came out in 2013. It was called Winger, which I wrote a really long time ago. And, uh, and then when, after it came out, people, I started getting kind of inundated with requests from around the world, people saying, we need to know what happens next. We need to know what happens next. And then Simon and Schuster um, came up with the idea that I should write a follow-up to it. And uh, that came out, I don't even, I write books like most people write checks. I think, <laughs> when did it come out? It came out in September, okay. It just came out not too long ago. Because I had another book that came out earlier this year called The Alex Crow, and they're vastly different. But um, writing Standoff was, was super fun because, I mean, although it had been such a long time since I wrote Winger, coming back to the voice, I think, and the complexities of Ryan Dean West as a character was really fun, and it was really easy to write. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and I'm, I'm happy with it. And I'm, I want, I'm waiting for your questions now. <laughs> <is> really... <laughs> well, um, so there, uh, this panel is called Boys to Men. And um, so I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, the panel's somewhat stacked with people who are men and, um, <laughs> and people who are describing books that are told from a, a male perspective or the perspective of a male character. And so, um, you know, our questions are going to be a lot about masculinity, masculinity in young adult literature. But I wanted to start out um, by asking you guys about something you've, at least the first three of you, have talked about just now and also in other uh, venues. So a bunch of you guys have written and spoke uh, or spoken about your writing for young people in terms of its purpose to engage reluctant readers or to address or provide a tool for talking about contemporary social issues. So how is this purpose linked to audience? Does literature for young people have an obligation to serve its youthful audience in specific ways? <laughs> Question number one, huh? Uh, enjoy. Well, uh, can I, let me let me start off because I know I'm going to be the different person probably because I you know the thing is that I don't I don't think that in my case that I have a, like a purpose in my life uh, in what I do. I mean, like I, I I only write stuff. That I that I'm having fun while I'm writing and I'm having a good time and so I'm not really thinking about a youthful audience and I'm not really thinking about like giving any kind of overarching message or sense of guidance to my readers. I'm just writing 
something that satisfies me, that I'm having a good time while I'm writing it, and I'm challenging myself and I'm working hard and I, I think that I'm trying to do the best job that I possibly can. And then when I'm done, I send it off and, uh, and it finds its way in the world. And I think what happens is the world tells you what you're doing. You know, like, uh, in fact, when I wrote my first book, and I think this is very common for a lot of YA authors, I didn't even know what YA was. I sold my first book. My agent said, your book sold as YA, and I was like, that's amazing. And then I had to go home and Google what YA was. Because <laughs> I never heard of it. So I think this is very common also in how we become sort of the reluctant reader, somewhat go-tos at times. And I think the world tells us that we don't, or at least for me as well as Andrew, I don't approach it trying to do that. Um, you know, sometimes I'll have a librarian call me, email me, and say, hey, you're going to be my Mexican author, you know, and I'll be like, ooh, you know, if you just read my books, you'd realize that I don't feel Mexican enough, and that's where I come from as an author, and then she'll be like, we're going to pay you this much, and I'll be like, I'm your Mexican author, man. <laughs> but I think that happens a lot. Um, the one thing, though, that I will say that is sort of from an agenda is it's my goal to show moments of grace and dignity on the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks. So. That's not a message, but it's sort of a point of view. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the point of view that I share. Um, I don't necessarily think that it always needs to be a message. I don't, because the reality is, is that message books are typically pretty lame. Uh, I mean, no one likes to be sort of like browbeat, right? I mean, we don't want to, it's just whack, it's lame. Uh, but, I, but, I, but on the flip side, I think that for me, uh, I approach the page with the intention of being as sincere as possible. Because I think that what, what young people see in, in an Andrew Smith or see in a Matt David Pena is, is, uh, is sincerity in a time where young people are lied to constantly. And so if they can see something that they feel is true or something that they feel is authentic or something that they feel is, is, um, is, 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 is that they can connect with, I find that that's where, uh, that's where their allegiance goes. I think that's where the obsession comes for. That's where sort of, you know, but I don't think I, I set out to, uh, to sort of like push an agenda. I think I set out to tell a story and I think life has enough agendas uh, of its own to sort of find themselves uh, in the midst of the work most of the time. I mean, I, I think uh, there's almost a, there's a misconception. I mean, I, I would never want to write down to a teen audience. I mean, there, I, I, I worked in a high school for 10 years. I'm around young people all the time. And uh, they ask some of the toughest, most uh, complex questions. And so I feel like I'm writing for, uh, for everybody. Um, but at the same time, I, I recognize that these books are, uh, are first and foremost given to, to young folks. And I feel like some of the most amazing moments of my own uh, teen years are moments where I, where I caught something and felt inspired to give a damn about something else other than myself, which I know family took a long time. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, uh, I feel a, a bit of responsibility to, to sort of talk about the larger world and talk about uh, stuff that's out there because... I think it can be done in a fun way. I think uh, I I found fun in uh, working with other uh, you know high school guys to tear apart posters that were misogynistic when it was prom time. You know that was a good thing. It was rebellious. It was fun, and it was uh, a bunch of guys talking about feminism. And that's that's what high school kids do. So it feels totally natural to me to try to engage in these quote unquote big topics with teens who are also engaging in those every single day of their lives. There's one thing that I think we would all agree on. We have two jobs as writers, and, and we didn't know this going in, but it just turns out 
we write books, we try to strive for liter literature, and then there's the, the world after the book exists, and I think that's where we actively try to be a presence for reluctant readers or, yeah. or guys and girls, but you know, guys too. Well, and uh, drawing from that, I, I've been writing down some of the little things you guys have been saying. And one of the things that you said, Matt, uh, you said the world tells you what you're doing. And um, that kind of sounds like it. Uh, the world told you what you were doing, not necessarily as a writer, but as the person who has to follow the book around. And I guess um, I wonder how much do you feel like you have to listen to what the world tells you? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, because sometimes I think publishers say, do what you just did, only a little bit different, you know? Because <laughs> if it was successful, that's what they're sort of looking for. So that is a separate issue. And I think one of the challenges as a, somebody who's striving to be an artist is to avoid repeating yourself and to explore something new. And be, that's why ideally you shouldn't be in a comfort zone as a writer or else I feel like the reader might be too comfortable too. Well, and I wonder, I'm sorry to jump on you, but I, I, I think I'm, Maybe reading your mind right now? Oh, <laughs> stop thinking that. So um, it's the robot ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess I, I wonder if you guys might all speak to how the world tells you what you're doing as authors and as men and as male authors for young people. That's heavy. Wow. The world is pinching my neck right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I don't know if the world tells me what to do. I just think the world talks a lot, right? I think the world is always sort of talking, right? And it's impossible for you to filter it all out. I think it's sort of like constant voices and constant sort of stimuli and impressions and influences. And you can either cho you could choose to sort of listen to the, the, the nonsense the world is talking about, or you can choose to sort of buy into it. Um, and so I think there are all, you have, but there's always, it, everybody on this panel makes conscious decisions every single day. Uh, when we sit at the, at the computer, and outside of that, for that matter, we all make conscious decisions to do the things that we're doing. And so I think as a, one, I, 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 I am a male uh, who, who happens to be a writer, but I don't know that I consider myself a male writer. I don't know if, I, if those two things are like, that they have to be sort of linked. Um, it does affect sort of how I approach, uh, how I see the world. It does affect sort of how I see uh, literature and how I approach the page, because uh, it has to in, internally. Um, usually, but I don't know if I see myself as a person, as a male writer, which means that I write for males, or which means that I sort of have some 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 inside uh, explanation to the life of all males, right? Because I don't, you know, and and I don't know what it's like to be hyper masculine, and I don't know what it's. I mean, there are things that I just don't know about masculinity because we're not a monolith, just like race isn't a monolith. Like I, it, I wish it were that simple. Where it was like ah, like oh Hemingway, that is the most massive. Like that's it, right? And, and, and the truth is, it just it, you're looking at several different examples of what male writers can do and what we do do. You know, I am not Andrew Smith. I will not be Andrew Smith. Uh, the way he approaches his work is very different than the way I approach my work. The way he's writing his characters are very different than my characters because there are millions of different kinds of people. And that's just how it goes. You know, so I. I and we've talked about this. I mean, that question is always an interesting one because I think it, it sort of um, it sort of distills the experience of the writer down to like gender and sex, and it's just not not for me. It's not for me. I think too, though. Like I think about a lot of books that uh, have male characters, and uh, there's a lot of action, and people are beating each other up, and I have to do 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 to achieve a goal, goal, goal. And I I appreciate writing books about boys and men 
uh, where the entire arc of the book is about an emotional experience because uh, you know I, I think it's nice to have some some uh, space for emotions in dialogue about men and um, and it's it's in conversations uh, about this where I, I feel like what we're shooting for is a is not necessarily uh, an ideal of masculinity that is about who I will become, but rather maybe an ideal about masculinity where I learn more about empathy, and I learn more about maybe even how to take the self out a little bit. Um, so I, I don't know, it's sort of turning it on its head, but I, I do want to be a little conscious of that, um, uh, especially because I see all the pressures on young boys about you know bouncing each other in the halls uh, between classes, and there are tons and tons of pressures about what it means to be a man, so let's just take that out and say, let's not talk about what it means to be a man. I think it's Jason's. I think you said a, a word, Brennan, that I think is very important in terms of my own approach. And you're right, Jason, we all have different approaches. So that's, that's the most important thing, a baseline piece of information. But you use the word space. And the biggest thing I do when I sit down to write is create space um, for, my, for my readers and for my characters. And this is what I mean by that. As a guy who writes sort of males who are growing up in a machismo culture, there's a little bit more of a reactionary feel to my characters. Um, there's a little bit less internal. And so one of the biggest, uh, I guess, arguments I get in with my editor is that she wants more internal, like a processing on the page of what's going on with the characters. And I always resist that simply because usually my characters don't know what they think in that moment. And I think that's a really important part of my process. And I think it's the same way for readers. I'm hoping that I create space for readers to fill in those spaces. You know, there's something interesting that happened uh, a couple years back. It actually involved Andrew. The Wall Street Journal wrote this really kind of offensive essay about YA being too dark. And it was a bummer, and we were all kind of bummed out about it. And I was very disappointed just because, you know, they were kind of going after a writer that I admired. But then the reaction to it was equally offensive to me, and it was the hashtag YA saves. And it felt like authors were taking too much credit because you know what? We've all been there when you break up with a girl or a guy and you're listening to wham, careless whisper, and you're like, <laughs> and you're like oh my God, you That's know what? Right. I'm never gonna dance again either. This is crazy. <laughs> but then you listen to that song uh, you know, several years later and you're like, this is the stupidest lyrics I've ever heard. But you placed pieces of your own flesh into the song and you gave it meaning. And I think we don't save anybody. Readers save themselves using our books as, as a tool. But can I, I want to kind of jump on your question a little bit. I think there's, I think there's too much like boxing in and binarism, looking at young adult literature as being like, oh, this book was written by a man or this is a boy book or this book was written by a woman and it's a girl book and so on. And, and there's also been, I think, and this starts in a, this starts in a lot of uh, MFA programs, actually. The, I think one of the new, the new trends is to, to avoid the, like the, the old adage of write what you know. And yet, if I'm going to go out and buy a cookbook, I want to buy a cookbook by a chef that's written by a chef as opposed to one that's written by a poodle groomer. <laughs> and I think that one thing that is that that kind of unites all of my 10 novels, which are all vastly different, but one recurring thread, I think, is like the, uh, 
inner struggle that boys feel by being boxed in by the expectations of what it is to be a boy and what's expected of them just because they happen to be born uh, with that Y chromosome. And, uh, and, that, and, and that is something that I think that, I, that I've kind of dealt with my entire life and raising my son into adulthood too. Is that is to try to just to break out of those expectations that that the limitation of the box I think that society places on probably more tightly well actually on both genders I mean and it's it's a ridiculous set of constraints I think for boys as well as for for girls but I'm just writing what I know. Yeah. So many people ask like, oh, Jason, all of your girl characters are written so well. How do you do that? And it's like. <laughs> because this is my profession. <laughs> it's such a strange thing. It's, it's such a weird thing that people are surprised. Like, it's just strange to me. It's like, I don't know, the women, the girl characters, because I'm writing human beings. Yeah. And because as many, as many, as many books have, have uh, half-developed female characters, trust me, there are 10 times the amount of books that have half-developed male characters that quote unquote male writers write, right? And just and thinking about all of those and that all of, our, all of us are striving to just write whole characters, period. Well, I wonder, and um, so I, I kind of coming back to a couple of things you said, again, the world tells you what you're doing and then you were saying, you know, you're male and a writer, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a male writer. Um, but at the same time, I wonder if the world, and it's a world that I might be part of, um, as, as someone who identifies as female, who's someone who's been in the um, you know, library profession, and uh, I, I wonder if I'm part of telling you what you are. Like, oh, you know, um, now Robert Lipsight, this was in 2011, or, um, argued that the publishing world, the youth publishing world is, is dominated by females. So if I'm part of that youth publishing and reception world that's dominated by females, when we see guys, we're like, there's guys. <laughs> and we think to our, and I mean, not in any kind of heterosexual way, <laughs> but um, we're like, oh, you know, it's like this, this, you know, the, the white horse or whatever. The unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> and here are the people who are going to talk to the boys for us. And I wonder if that kind of message is one that forces you to assume the male writer role, to speak in those essentialist terms. And as Matt mentioned, you know, to, or to speak in um, ethnically essentialist terms, because again, you know, maybe majority female, but also probably majority white too. Is it my fault? <laughs> no. Yes. It's all your fault. Oh. Well, you can you can put my books wherever you want to as long as you put them into the hands of readers. And you know, because again, I mean, I when I first started uh, being a man writing YA, you are so in the minority. And maybe that's where that came from. Um uh, you know, the, the idea that, wow, there's a man and he's actually writing YA. And I think Matt, that was probably Matt's experience too, because I think we both kind of maybe started right mm -hmm. around the same time. I'm not really sure. But yeah, I'd, I would go to things and, you know, I'd be like the only guy in this entire, which was pretty cool. <laughs> and I mean, I, I wonder if that's a privileged minority too, because it's like, oh, here comes a man. I mean, okay. I'm, Sorry, playing feminist devil's advocate at this point. Like, here comes a man who's going to tell us what to do. Finally, someone who can speak for men.
Let me um, mansplain to you, yes. <laughs> because I'll tell you everything yeah. you need to know. Yeah. The, you know, the unicorn again, and yeah. Nobody cut, nobody, I don't think anybody cut any one of us any slack in terms of making sure that we had our chops and we worked hard and we did what we needed to do as writers to develop our talents. You know what I'll say is an interesting thing I've noticed is it is kind of going to your question, it is kind of the easy move to, to place Jason Reynolds in the uh, juvenile hall system. It's like, we're gonna bring in Jason Reynolds, he's gonna get it, um, they're gonna see themselves in him. But what I found is fascinating, like I get, I get those invites too, I end up in uh, those kind of settings just because of what I write. But I've also seen somebody like Gail Foreman go into the exact same setting and watched the kids gobble her up. So it is kind of the easy thing is to think, let's put Jason Reynolds there, but it's also not the only move you can make. Um, but I will say, it is incredible, and I know all of us here have, have experiences, having a young male who's a non-reader read your book and give literature a chance because they felt something reading your book. I mean, that's just amazing. So I think we all love those moments too. Yeah, and I think there can be many different kinds of books that can bring that reader in. Uh, I mean, I think that's what we're all saying. And it, it almost seems unfair to say that I know what is right for this kid. Um, I, I don't know the kid well enough. I mean, if, I, if I'm doing my job, I feel like I offer each child a whole number of, of, of options, and one might do it, and one might not, and not everyone's gonna be a reader. And that's also true too, and that's okay. I mean, hopefully we can inspire a lot of folks, but uh, you know, we just need to give them more books, and we need to actually, I think, diversify the books that all of us are reading because it might actually uh, break down a lot of these barriers about what, what categories are right for each kind of student that we've already sort of talked about as if it's, uh, we're talking about all the edges and we're not talking about the person who's between those edges. And uh, I feel like that person is a complicated, interesting, complex person who could like Tolkien and Judy Bloom, And that's okay, that would be cool. I think, um, just to make a very direct answer, I, because I agree with everything that, that my, my buddies up here have said, and I, that's the side that I'm on. But I also would be remiss, and I would be lying to myself <clears> if I didn't say that I was writing work for the 15-year-old for the Jason Reynolds, right. right? A kid who grew up with nothing that he saw himself in. And people, can, and people can argue all day whether or not that's important or not, but as a kid who grew up that way, it was very important. Very important, because those books, without Walter Dean Myers, those books didn't exist, right? And so, and so when I think about this notion of like, oh, you can speak to the, to, the, to the guys, one, I don't wanna feel, I don't necessarily wanna feel like I'm obligated to do so, and I think that's sort of where the issue comes in, is like, you're here, you have a role, and it's like, I, I kinda wanna just do my thing. But on the flip side, I do feel there is sort of an inkling of responsibility uh, that I choose, right? That's not, that's not forced on me, I choose that. Uh, I choose that because I'm very aware that not all kids are the same, not all environments are the same, uh, not all socioeconomic backgrounds are the same, houses and housing and families aren't the same, and it isn't about like, oh, well, we should give them any kind of book. Yes, yes, that's great, and it sounds really incredible, but oftentimes, we have to give them a starting point. I don't think that kids have to only read Jason Reynolds' books, right? Every black kid in the world ain't gotta like, Jason Reynolds is all I wanna read. It's like, no, 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 no. 
But it's okay. I mean, the majority, well, you, should, you, know, I mean, you should You should feature it. I, 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 it's like, look, a blurb on the back of the book. Yeah. But, 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 I, but I do think that it's okay for some kid to say, look, this is the first book. For me, it was Richard Wright. Richard I was 17, right? First novel at 17. So I know for a fact those kids exist. I know for a fact we can say, like, I just want readers. Yeah, but sometimes readers are made. You have to make readers. And in order to do so, you, sometimes you have to create the work that they can latch on to at first before they can read Token and before they can read Hemingway and all of them, right? We have to give them a springboard. And sometimes the springboard is you know what, what that looks like now. You know what you're, th you're, you're talking about entry points right now. And I do think maybe going back to your question, because this question is getting a lot of, lot of run right here, but... Maybe what you're talking about is the more simple, the very beginning, which is the entry point. So, you know, for me, I wasn't a reader in high school, but I did read um, House on Mango Street like 50 times exactly. because it felt like home. So maybe it's an entry point, but the, the most incredible thing that I find is two experiences. One, I met this kid in Texas. He was a basketball player. He ended up playing in college, and he had read Baldo Life like 15 times. And I was like, first of all, I would like to adopt you. But second, <laughs> the second thing, though, is he go, I said, what's your favorite part? You've read it so many times. Baldo Life's got a big basketball theme, and he's a basketball player. I was ready for a basketball moment. He's, he cited six moments in the book. None of them had anything to do with basketball. So basketball was his entry point. But when he got in there, he found the human experience. And then another thing that you see sometimes, which blows me away, I get, I, I'll get emails, you know, mostly Facebook messages from a kid in Utah. He's white. He's living in a huge, like, mansion. You know, he's got, like, Range Rovers in the yard. And there's a picture of him on Facebook shooting a jump shot. And he will write me and he will say, yo, ball don't lie. That's, like, my life. And I'm like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not at all your life, but okay, bro. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting that he found a connection that wasn't, the simple one, you know? That's how the juvies are. For all of you, have anybody been in juvie? Y'all ain't never been in a juvie. <laughs> yeah, but, but if you ever gone to a juvenile detention center, what you would expect to see in the library that all the kids are reading are Monster by Walter D. Myers or some of my books or Matt's books. The truth is, though, the most read books in juvenile detention centers all over this country, Gail Foreman, Cassie Clare, Jenny Han, they're reading, they, they want to read romance. Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty, 50 Shades very, of Grey. <laughs> right? They, they want it because, because they're 15 years old and they're locked up at a time where yeah. they, if they were free, they'd be dating. They'd be discovering sexuality and relationships and romance. And so what they read in Juvenile Detention Center, it's, they're not reading When I Was the Greatest. They're not reading All American Boys. They're reading Gail Foreman. They're reading uh, Lauren Oliver. They're reading other, other people, which is a big a big surprise to most people because they think, you automatically think and stereotype and profile these kids who are locked up or who are growing up in the hood as kids who want to read uh, these things. And it's the case sometimes, but it's also not always the case. Well, and I think that kind of um, literary profiling is something that happens, um, something that grown-ups do to kids. But I think, and what I hear you guys saying, is um, that maybe other people do to you. Sure. when they send you and you to juvie. And when you first said that, I was like, you went to juvie? I thought he meant like <laughs> so you had so actually gone to, no, I mean, I thought he meant like in your yeah, past. So oh, really? Times. No, of course not. Well, I <laughs> Thank you for not assuming that. I <laughs> you almost got sent to juvie for bringing in that water. No, they thought it was vodka. They're like, alcohol, alcohol. It's water, miss. <laughs> 
But um, I've been to juvie. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> not. I mean, like, not not in this country. But um, oh, like, no. hold on. As a person or as an author? No, as an author. Oh, okay. Well, I made yeah. and I made kids cry okay. at the end of Winger. They were crying. Wow. Yeah, boys, like That's teenage, funny. tough teenage boys. Winger's in a lot of the juvies that yeah. I know. Yeah. Winger is in a lot of juvies. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I don't get sent anywhere, so I'm doing <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> they just send me here to corral these men. <laughs> so I have a question for you guys. This is a, a weird question, but it was something that, that was brought up. Okay, this is an, a very essentialist question, but you said like guys going like this in the yeah, hall. Yeah. So here's something I don't understand and I want us just to, to can we stand up and do this? Um, can you okay. also define essentialist? This is oh, the teacher oh, speaking. Means, in case people in the audience don't know what you mean by that, that would be. Like when people um, make an assumption that like, well it's like the male author, like yeah. all males are like this, all females are like this. Right. So like gender essentialism would be like all dudes are like this, all chicks are like this. Oh, we're standing this. up. Stand up. We're standing okay. Up. Okay. okay, so here's something I haven't understood and I don't know how to do it. And I, and I think that it might have to do with my lack of a Y chromosome. Okay, so you know how you, like, you're watching TV and the men, okay, I'm gonna try to do it to you, it's not gonna hurt. Like, <laughs> face me. And like two guys will walk up to each other and one will go like this. <laughs> like they're, and you, like, you're passing a person and you're like, with your shoulder. Right. Okay, what is that? <laughs> like it's, 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 it's basically what we, what my mama used to call a cruising for a bruising. Well, okay. So, like, can you, uh, like, can you do it? No, I mean, like, like. Well, I mean, is that like? How is that even a natural thing to do? Well, it's, like, it's a, it's a half hook. Like it's a, like, wow, yeah. Oh, you're talking about? To, is it aggressive? Are you? Is it's it, the aggressive, like. Oh, yeah, it's I see. You. Like, see, you're, you like, know what? Can I just give you a little I'm, I'm pointers a little, about your craft here? Yeah. Because <laughs> you're coming in too strong. That's yeah. very dramatic. It's much What's more. It's like, much yeah. more subtle. It's yeah. just Maybe a little. Maybe you guys could do little, Okay, what is that? What do you, how, like, how do you do that? How do you do that? Nice and slow. And like, and how is it? Okay, this is the. How is it that guys know that that's like a message? I have never seen girls do that to each other. You should have come to my well, high school. Yeah. <laughs> when they do the shoulders, the shoulders. A lot of girls do that. I mean, there's other things girls do to each other. Oh yeah. But I, the shoulder thing, it's like, I just don't understand it. I think we're throwing our bodies at each other since we're, you know, somebody puts a truck in our hand. Uh, I'm serious. I mean, I think it's, to answer your question earnestly, I think it's a, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of socialization there. And so I think it's, it's a language. It's just how we communicate. Uh, although I never did that very well, so I could never claim any masculinity. But uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's all there. It's, it's, it's part of the language, like, like many groups have. Groups have languages. It's the worst language ever. And so it's yeah. a very, it's well, a terrible it's, language. it's a weird thing because it just seems like, you know, you know how to do it, you know, but I, I certainly there's, don't there's know how to do it. There's one guy who doesn't know how it to, because yeah, see, no. the, what really happens is when that happens in the hallway, there's a guy who is the person who is receiving that and there's a person who's giving that. It isn't always that the situation where we're, I see you coming toward me and we're going to bump each other. It's like, no. Typically, one of us doesn't know that the other one is going to bump yeah. us, which uh -huh. is why this ends up in a fist fight most of the time. But you know what the cool thing is? is like when you explore things like that in, in a book, yeah. it's not just what you see, the shoulders bumming. It's all the other stuff you get to explore yeah. around it, which is the most interesting part, you know? Yeah. And that's the language. That's where the language really yeah. comes yeah. in. And I think, too, the other thing is that, like what Brendan said, 
He said this, he said, it comes from like the first time somebody puts a truck in your hand. And see, and that's what we've been doing to boys and girls yeah. for a long time. And I think that we're just now starting to actually, it's, it's being accepted that we can have this dialogue. Like, let's stop. Let's stop like imposing these constraints on our kids in terms of their sexuality and how they're supposed to project themselves because it really is kind of a sexual thing. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that the, the fact that we can explore this topic honestly and open now, and you're raising a beautiful child right now, and you, she's got so many opportunities ahead of her to not be locked in, especially the way that people from my generation were locked into boy equals this, girl equals this. You know what? Yeah. I, I think this is really interesting. I'm so glad I came to this panel because... When I do go home, I have an 18-month-old daughter. I'm going to teach her the shoulder bump. <laughs> People need to know. People yeah, need to know. This is good. That's right. Yeah, like I, I saw it on television, and I was like, I asked so my husband. Well, I asked my husband. I was like, Have you ever done that? And so we tried it, and he was like, No. And well, I I did it, and he was like. Uh, and then he did it to me, and it was really good. And I was like, how do you know how to do this? Like, is it is it part of, like, you know, being a dude? Like, that shoulder just... It's all, I think it's all taught, though. Yeah. But, you're, but you know how to respond as soon as it happens. And I think that, like, if I were a guy, also if I were taller, because our shoulders definitely did not match. <laughs> um, I think it would have been a different shoulder thing. But you guys did it really well. Like, yours looked really, like, seriously. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I'm, you know. But a lot of it's posturing, you know, like Eddie Murphy had a great bit in one of his early stand-ups about, you know, Italians coming out of uh, watching Rocky and right. wanting to fight. And he said, he said, like, you know, that what I do is I just try to act like I'm crazy, like I'm crazier than you. But if they just laughed, he's like, I'm not fighting that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> if they're not scared. So a lot of it is just purely peacock, you know, yeah. peacock activity. It's all posturing. My dad told me when I was a kid, he said, look, if you feel like you're about to get in a fight, just punch him. Terrible advice. But, that, but, that's, but before, a lot of us, before a lot of us, that's sort of the advice that you're raised with. It's like, look, if you even think there's going to be a fight, you got to take the first swing. Because if he hits you first, it's over. Oh. Right? It's this constant sort of, it's power, right? This constant dominance and power. Like, look, just hit him. If you think he even looks like he wants problems, just punch him in the face. Which is ridiculous, but that's what we—that's what so many boys are being raised with. Don't cry, don't cry. You fall yeah. down, shake it off, get up. You all right? You all right? And it's like I'm not all right. I'm hurting, but your but your right. parents always telling you you all right, shake it off. You all right? You all right? You all right? Which I'm sure a lot of us have heard, right? Like, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And it's like no, I'm not fine over here, right? <laughs> but now I'm being taught that like fine is is masking the pain. Fine is like swallowing the tears. And then one day you're 40, or you're in high school and you're shoulder bumping, and and like it's just it's. Yeah. It's viral and it's toxic. Yeah. And it's also protective most of the time. They, they think they're teaching you how to protect yourself. Yeah, there are different levels. Like, so we're talking about general male stuff. But there's also cultural differences. There's also um, socioeconomic differences. I saw something recently that was kind of mind-blowing. It's something we all know about. But I was in Minneapolis for a book festival. It was a teen book festival. And there were, like, going to be a 1,000 kids there. But first, I went to every juvenile hall that was close to the festival. So it was 99% brown right. in, in the juvenile hall system. They were all reading books, but it was on 99% brown. Mexican, Latino, you know, African-American. 
Then I went to the festival, it was 99% white. So that's something to consider too. It's not just male, it's which, where do you come from as a male? What, what socioeconomic level are you at? What do you look like? What is your neighborhood like? You know, those are all the, the little tweaks in, in between. Well, and I think because, and again, I'm gonna speak for like women like me who have been, a, who have been in the profession, but not the profession, um, the, the library profession, not the oldest profession, um, but uh, who, you know, don't know how to do the shoulder and who are like, well, who, you know, so, sometimes it's, you're told as a woman that men are different. You are never going to understand men. Because, and, you know, sometimes those you are never going to understand men things are insulting to men. Sometimes they're insulting to women. And I think when we put it all together in a space where we're concerned and we're interested in reading and literature and representation, I think, again, this, this might be part of where and how the world tells you guys what you're supposed to be. Because we have been told that we can never understand men. And so we tell you, help us. Help mm. us understand men. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, a double-sided mm. uh, thing. Now, you guys, we have about 15 minutes, and we haven't had a chance to have questions from the audience. And I was wondering if uh, folks would be interested in posing some questions to the group. If you would come up to the, oh, dear. Come up to the microphone. Good jacket. Uh, hi, so my name's Phil, and I currently work in a Boston public school. And my question is, how do you navigate conversations or questions for young males in the middle school space who are more masculine than other boys? It's like, literacy and reading is cool. How do you navigate that to promote literacy and get them to read, understand that it doesn't matter whether how masculine you are, how, how much you sports you play, or like how tough you are in the school, like reading is reading, and that's concept. I, I'm a teacher. I teach in public school in California. I'm probably going to get fired tomorrow morning or Monday morning. But um, oh man, they hate me so much. But I mean, and this, and this, I mean, here's the thing. I love teaching and I love working with kids. And I think the, the, the most important thing is that for all of us, because we're all teachers and we're all role models, and you can't deny that if you're an adult and you're on this planet, you have a responsibility to bring up the younger generation, otherwise we're doomed to extinction. And, um, and so, I mean, my kids see me read. I'm not, I don't put my books in my classroom. They see me read and we talk about books and they, they get that positive message. And I have boys, in, in my class, I teach high school, and I have boys who read, who love reading, like Marie Lu and, um, uh, gosh, uh, Catching Fire and Mockingjay, and they love to read a, the kinds of books that a lot of times society says, hey, this isn't a boy book, this, this is a girl book. And, um, and, yet, and I think that's the most important thing. And, and then boys in, in, invariably like to ask the awkward question, like, wow, Mr. Smith, you, you write a lot of swear words and sex. <laughs> Aren't you embarrassed? <laughs> and I said, and, and I tell them, and I say, um, no, um, do you have any questions about it? Because I'm, I, I'm a teacher and I, I'd be completely fine uh, talking to you about 
the sex in the book or the way the kids talk to each other or the way kids treat members of the opposite sex or people who are, you know, uh, uh, LGBTQ? You know, I think, I think uh, it's kind of strange for us because we're sometimes asked questions like this as if we're, I mean, you're a teacher, so you, you have an understanding that I, I don't at least, I know you're a teacher too. But I think my base answer would be, first of all, I think it's so powerful to read the kids even when they're older. Like I think that's an entry point. They don't have to do the early work because some of the best books kids will read start off feeling uncomfortable. And so you help them get through that part. But also just reading books that, that they want to read. You know, like one of the saddest things I see in high school is the stuffy old teacher who just reads the canon. It's like, yeah, read the canon, but also read the new fresh stuff that's, that kids are they're feeling like it's happening today. I think so, you know, what, what you choose for them is and important. I, I feel like I remember being a kid and when I was really young, I'd play these make-believe games where I thought I was Indiana Jones or I thought I was some, you know, heroic character or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was all in my mind, obviously. But I feel like there are, there are stories that are, that are there in the mind that every kid cares about on some level. And I feel like even in my own classrooms, I would use movies, I'd show a short clip from a movie, and then either in comparison to a text or the same book. A, a book from the movie or vice versa, right? And, and people, I, I feel like kids really get it and they just talk about the differences. And then by, before you know it, they're reading the whole book because they care about the characters already. I think there's, there's so many different kinds. I think that's what we keep saying over and over again. There's so many different kinds of stories. We just have to do a good job getting as many as possible out to the kids and, also, and the adults. And also don't be tied to stories. I think, what ha I think what happens most times is that we have a very sort of narrow view of what it means to read. We say, I want my kids to read, but we don't ever talk about what that really means. What you really want to say is, I want my kids to read novels. And my kids don't want to read novels, right? It's like, well, why don't you give your kid graphic novels? Why don't you give your kid Drake lyrics, yeah. right? Seventh graders love them. They love hip hop. They love all that stuff. Give them, give, them, give them rap lyrics. And maybe you don't even tell them they're rap lyrics. Maybe you tell them it's poetry afterwards. <laughs> but because it is that's how I got into the, that's how I started to write Queen Latifah saved my life right like this notion of poetry I think let's open up what it, what it means to uh, to read right or really define what that what that's about can I just say a little quick a little anecdote because I this this reminds me of something I just wrote a piece for the Guardian newspaper in the UK about Syrian kids that I've worked with in the last few years the refugees who've come over from Syria and this one boy was one of the first boys that I got, and he, he's just absolutely brilliant. He's uh, getting ready to go on to college next year, and he's at that. He's one of the uh, first uh, English language learner kids that we've ever gotten at my school that's going to graduate with a higher than a 4.0 grade point average. And he told me how he learned English because he didn't know English when he came here three years ago. He learned English by writing down Eminem lyrics. Yeah. and. Yeah and memorizing Eminem lyrics and over and over, and it's just like the kid can just chant Eminem. <laughs> um, I haven't read any of your stuff, but I can't wait to, so I'm uh, glad I came. So, <laughs> uh, but I work with young men. Um, I was a, I've been a teacher for a long time. I help with a, a, a coordinate a mentoring program for young men at a charter school here nearby. But I guess what I'm still struggling with, we talked a lot about 
kind of all the conversations that we need to have about how boys should be able to be basically who they want. But I think it gets really complicated and very hard to convince them not to be more traditionally masculine once they start getting into relationships with girls because there's kind of a cultural narrative that actually plays out in their own lives with the most popular girls usually where they don't understand that being nice doesn't get them the attention they want um, and being compassionate and they find the boys who are mean and unresponsive to girls actually getting more attention and I think that's a conversation that is so complicated, but you can't go into the complications with, with younger boys, usually younger men. Um, and so I just wonder, once again, I haven't read your stuff, but I'm wondering what pieces of kind of traditional masculinity do you keep in your characters that, <clears throat> excuse me, possibly might have some kind of virtue, not just to have sex with girls, but just like in general, like are there some virtues in more traditional masculine ways that have kind of gone across time as something to, to work toward. Like my thing is just be confident, but don't be arrogant. You know, I'm trying to teach them to find that balance. And I, I wonder if your characters balance the kind of the compassionate, more feminine, if you will, things, which I think we need to tell boys about, but with more kind of traditional. You know, I've actually read everybody's work here, so I feel like I can speak to it, but I'm so, like deftly attuned to a fake male. You know, like when, when I read a book with a, a male protagonist who doesn't feel right or that I know a kid wouldn't gobble up. And I have to say, I feel like even though our, our males are different, they're all traditionally male in some way, at least on the surface or in some ways. But what's so, what separates a guy book from hopefully literature is the, the different elements in the guy, you know, like maybe the front is there, the shoulder bump, but then you're also seeing the sadness and, and the hope and the insecurities from the football player. You know what I mean? So I, luckily I feel like I'm on a panel with people who are doing it right, you know, and what a great thing for a young reader who's trying to figure out what it means to be a man to see those different levels in a book, you know? I, I really hate fake teens in general because yeah. Yeah. Being a high school teacher for going on 25 years, I can spot a YA that's written by somebody who has absolutely no yes. interaction with teens. I can spot it a mile away. And the thing that I hate the most, and I think this addresses your question, the thing that I really hate the most in YA, and it doesn't matter whether it's, a, it's happening to a boy or happening to a girl, and, and I tell this to my students constantly, don't think that falling in love is going to fix all the things that are messed up in your life and make you whole. It's not that, you know, that Prince Charming isn't going to fix your life and save your life. And the beautiful, perfect girl, the prom queen girl, isn't going to fix your life and fill all those holes in. And uh, this, isn't, this isn't the beginning and the ending of everything now. It's just like, it's the opening of your, your maturation. Don't get caught up in those relationship things. Boys and girls, listen. <laughs> Do not have children. <laughs> I, I, I also, They're expensive. <laughs> I also think that I, I really don't know if I believe that one single book can solve all of this for one person. And I don't think, as a teacher, I don't think one teacher does all the things to 
help a person become a whole person. I mean, I'm not a whole person now. And I, I, we're always in evolution, so I feel like it's just part of the process, too. And part of the frustration is that we do what we can with all the stuff we can and just have to do more of it. And it's, I think that's, <laughs> I, I'm, to answer honestly, I think that's part of it. This, uh, this question is for Andrew. Um, I've only read um, two of your books, but I, they're both uh, very strongly voiced first person uh, books, Grasshopper Jungle, and I forget the name of the other one, but it's with Kate Hernandez. Um, yeah, yeah. 100 and, Sideways Miles. Yes, right. And um, He's a real person, by the way. He, really? Yeah. <laughs> Swear. Uh, if like from your life? Yeah, he's a student of mine. Wow. He's in college now. Wow. But he actually, that, all that stuff is true. That's, that's incredible <laughs> and hard to believe. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I guess my question for you is um, telling those stories, um, maybe retrospectively you can answer this better, um, but was there a time when you thought, you know, maybe like third person would be a good way to tell these or do you find that the first person, especially, I've, I find your characters in first person to be incredibly believable and real. I didn't know you were a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a middle school teacher, and, and it's very believable. All the, the narration and the dialogue is that um, more of an access point um, for, for boys, uh, you think, to sort of uh, go through these journeys with the characters together and take a look at themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I love writing in first person. And believe it or not, when, um, and you have eight novels to go, by the way, if you've only read two. Um, when, I, when I sold my first novel, uh, one of the um, editorial assistant, assistants at the house where I sold it thought that I was a woman because of how introspective my male character was and thought that I was just writing with a male pen name. But I, I do, I, and as you, you, since you've read Grasshopper Jungle, I do jump into third person sometimes. But I do, I just really like writing in first person. I don't think I ever won't write novels that at least have part of it in first person. And thank you for being a reader and a, and a teacher, especially. Okay, gang, we've got uh, time for one more question. I see two people standing. <coughs> So, mine's really tied it out. All right, go for it. Let's see. So, um, I love this panel, first of all. This has been amazing. Love, love, love it. Uh, Jason, you said you didn't write, like you, you just, you were a writer, and that's how you write for, for girls. But how do we get girls to read books that are then also about boys? I don't really think, for me at least, that hasn't really been that big of a problem. I think it's been, I think, uh, for me, I don't know about you guys, but I, I find that I probably have more girl readers than I have guy readers. Just because I think on a whole, when we think about readers, we typically think about girl readers. Um, and so, good question, but I don't, I don't know if I don't have that issue. I've is, observed the lines, it's true. Uh, <laughs> is, there a girl, is there a girl here named Savannah? I thought that was you. How far did you come? She came from Rhode Island, and I've never, and you've read my books, right? And you came here because you like my book? Okay. You rock. See that mug, man. I, came, I came from Montana to hear you guys. So. You rock. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, you can take her. So first of all, I wanted to tell you, Matt, that what you said about boys wanting books with curse words and sex, it's so true. I took my class to the library two weeks ago, and one of my boys said, Miss Rennie, can you show me books like 
uh, Gabby, a girl in pieces by Isabel Quintero. I want words that have the, I want books that have the F word in them and there's sex happening. I was like, okay, JP, let me show you where, where we can find books like that. But anyway, I'm a, te <laughs> I am a teacher at a public school in Central Falls, Rhode Island, and I'm a part of the Rhode Island Teen Book Award Committee. And I am constantly pushing for books to be nominated for this committee that have more diverse characters and diverse authors. And I'm always shut down by the librarians, a part of that committee, because they tell me no one checks those books out in my library. And I say, that's not true, because my kids go to your library and they're checking them out. But we're also tiny. Central Falls is small, and urban areas in Rhode Island are small, and we don't cater to that. What would you tell those librarians on my committee about why books by you should be nominated. I have something I want to say, but I don't want to say in public, so please come to me afterwards. Because <laughs> I have to censor myself. Because uh, uh, I like to drop F-bombs too. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, think, um, I think you have hit the nail on the head with the major problem. Publishers Weekly just published an article the other day that 89% of the people who work in publishing are white, which is what? But uh, it's crazy, right? And so the, the problem is the institution, right? And so uh, I, I guess the only thing to say is to keep up the good fight, but also maybe they can be reminded that they are part of the problem. Um, because I, I feel like uh, all kids need to read more diversely. Uh, you know, not every child needs to read uh, Catcher in the Rye anymore. There are a whole lot of other books out there. <laughs> so, I mean, the best is to keep up the fight. I and think. you know what I think it is? It's not, of an, it's not an instead of proposition, yeah. it's, an it's an also. So yeah. it's like we don't like diverse characters. It's not like we want to replace the catcher in the right, although secretly we do. But, <laughs> but it's like we want to be at the table too. And that's why, you know, a lot of people say, hey, this we need diverse book thing has taken it too far. But it's like, it's not when you have conversations like that, you know? So I would, I would actually just. And especially when my students, they look at the books that are on the list of the Rhode Island Teen Book Award and there are no kids of color, protagonists of color yeah. in any of those books. Pra practically, practically suggest, pair, su suggest pairings. Pra and a very, a very practical answer is tell the library, right? Or, or you, you know, suggest, suggest pairings. Say, look, if you're gonna, if this is the book we're pitching, then also pitch this. Like go, sit, give the kids both of these books, right? Suggest pairings. Once the kid gets the book home, you never know, right? But I think I think that's a good thing we can start doing. And a little vandalism is okay. Like if you want to like slash tires or that's. <laughs> also, like I mean, the whole world is talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates right now. He's probably going to win the National Book Award and the MacArthur Genius yeah, and the like. Him. It's like no, it's I mean it's it's a big deal. And like this is the this is the conversation our country's having right now. So either they can join it or be a part of the problem. I wanted to get into that earlier. <laughs> All, right. All right, guys. Well, it is uh, time for us to go. So thank you all for coming. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.